Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to NJSBA's blog talk show, Conversation on New Jersey Education, a show dedicated to creating a conversation among those of the, us in the education community and beyond on the important education issues of the day. And I hope a conversation that you can join in on. Uh, my name is Ray Penny. I'll be your host for this special edition this afternoon on Conversations in New Jersey. Um, we'll be taking both callers and uh, comments from our chat room. And to let you know how that's going to work, uh, we have Christy. Christy, could you please explain that? I would love to. Good afternoon, everybody. Now, if you want to call on in, just dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four. Again, it's one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four. When you're ready to make a comment or ask a question, just press 1 on your telephone. I'll put you in the holding room and ask your name and your question or topic. Remember, that if you're listening on the computer, just turn down your volume a little bit because there is a delay and it's confusing. Now, if you're just listening on your computer, too, we have a chat room feature that you can log into. We will be monitoring the chat room and we'll pass on some of the comments or questions onto our speaker. To log into the chat room, you will need to register with Blog Talk Radio. Thanks, Christy. Uh, last year, the legislature passed and the governor signed into law the Anti-Bullying Bill of Rights, a law designed to change the behavior and the environment in our schools that bullying and harassment are not tolerated. <clears throat> I do not believe anyone really ever opposed the intent of the law, and I know that all districts had policies in place to prevent and deal with HIV, harassment, intimidation, and bullying before the law was passed. So the issue itself was not new. What was new, however, was that some of the procedures, the reporting and training requirements were new and some thought rather costly and cumbersome. One district, the district of Alamuchi in Warren County, challenged the law as a state mandate before the little-known group called the Council on Local Mandates. And it appears that it has successfully challenged the law. In a few minutes, we will have the superintendent, Tim Fredericks, and the board president, Fran Gavin, talk with us about their case. But first, for a few minutes, we'll have Mike Calber, a school board attorney with NJSBA, and we will discuss the Council of Local Mandates because some people were not even sure what this council was. Um, so uh, welcome, Mike. Welcome, Ray. Nice to be here. Okay. It's great to have you. Um, first of all, what is the Council of Local Mandates? How did it come about, and what's their job? Well, the Council of Local Mandates has been around since 1996. I mean, a lot, as you said, a lot of people don't know of their existence. It came about through the implementation of the constitutional amendment on state mandate state pay, which was approved by the voters in the November 1995 election. The legislation came into effect shortly thereafter. Now, the Council is a bipartisan body. It's independent of the executive, legislation, legislative, and judicial branches of state government, and it consists of nine members, one appointed by the Chief Justice of the of Supreme Court, one appointed by the Assembly Minority Leader, one appointed by the Speaker of the Assembly, four appointed by the Governor, 
one appointed by the Senate Minority Leader and one appointed by the Senate President. So it is not, they have nine members. Uh, they meet and they review petitions to the council as to whether a, a particular law violates state mandate state pay. Now, one of the interesting aspects about the council, <coughs> excuse me, is that their decisions, and, and I love the language from the legislation, their decisions are deemed to be political determinations and are not subject to judicial review. So when this body of appointees decides whether a particular piece of legislation is an unfunded mandate or not, that's it, game over. And we've been involved in some some cases before the council. For instance, oh, about 2004 or so, there was a law in the books requiring districts to test for radon gas. And that went before the council as to whether it was an unfunded mandate or not. The council said it was an unfunded mandate. They invalidated the law and that requirement for districts went away. We've also seen some other uh, cases, for instance, in special education class size, um, some issues with charter school funding, where once the council invalidates a law, it's invalidated. It then is up to the legislature to make a determination as to whether to recreate the law, to pass something new with, with uh, approved funding attached to it so it wouldn't be violative of state mandate, state pay, and you know, depending on what comes out of the decision in Alamucci when it gets when it gets rendered, it's something that the legislature is going to have to wrestle with. Um, now they don't look. My understanding is they don't even look at whether the law is needed or not. They just look at whether it's a mandate from the state, and if it is a mandate that on a local government, whether it's a municipality or a school district, that the state should be funding it. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, there are certain exceptions. Uh, what are those exceptions? Uh, well, are so, a, a piece of legislation that re, uh, requires a municipality or a school district or county to comply with federal laws or meet certain federal entitlement eligibility standards, that's an exception. If it's imposed on government and non-government entities alike, that's an exception. If it's, if it's a repeal, a revision, or an amendment to an existing mandate, a previously enacted law, that's an exception. If it's a, uh, a legislation that implements the New Jersey Constitution, for instance, if it's required to provide a thorough, efficient education in the public schools, that would be an exception. That argument's been raised from time to time. And there's there's one other with respect to laws enacted after a public hearing, hailed after public notice, that unfunded mandates will be considered. Um, that doesn't happen too often. So the real exemptions are federal requirements, government, non-government entities alike, existing requirements or mandates being revised or repealed or uh, enhanced, uh, previously enacted laws, and or the implementation of the New Jersey Constitution. Ray? Ray? Hello, Ray? Mike? Sorry. Yeah. I got disconnected. Uh, how far back can you go if the law was passed, say, in 2003, and all of a sudden in 2010, someone, can someone challenge it now, or is that just too late? Um, that Boy, that's a great question. I'm not entirely sure I'm here. if there is a... Yeah, I know. I'm not entirely sure. I'd have to look at the regulations, but I believe that you as you can contest 
an unfunded mandate at any time. I'm not aware of a timeline in there, but I'd have to. I really would have to go back and take a look at, you know, the particular regulations and procedures for that. Um, but you know, and for instance, with the with this uh, anti-bullying bill of rights act, I mean, the initial legislation goes back to 2002. Right. So in terms and of that it, procedure, in terms of consider, considering that, some of the aspects could go back that far, conceivably. Yes, and I think that was brought up, uh, and I will discuss that with the, the, the two gentlemen from uh, Alamucci. Uh, I believe that was brought up in their case, that it was just an amendment to the law. Um, so anything before 1996 when this law came about cannot be touched, uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, Right. And any law, any modification to a law that's already on the books that was not deemed a mandate cannot be touched either, right? Those are exceptions under the law, and you know, it's it's uh, those kinds of determinations are always open to interpretation. I don't think we could say, you know, with blanket 100% assuredness that simply because a law was enacted previously or an amendment to a law that was enacted previously would be exempt. Um, in, in this particular case, I mean, you're going to be talking with the Alamucci people, but they were looking, at least in their pleadings, primarily to aspects of this new law. They really didn't talk about the 2002 original uh, law, but talked about issues with respect to the uh, training programs in districts, the anti-bullying coordinators and specialists, the school safety teams, and some of the responses that districts have to have to make under this law. So they really focused on the new legislation. And we'll probably come back to this later, but their ruling, at least to me, was a little interesting in that they gave the legislature and the governor 60 days to, before their ruling becomes official. It, or, well, it, it, I, I'm not sure if it's official. That's probably not the right word I want to use, but uh, well, they gave a, them 60 days. Lot, yeah, there have been a lot of press reports about the determination of the council on local mandates. I think essentially, to be more technically accurate, they have not yet issued a decision. So as we sit here today, the law is in full effect and full force, and we're continuing to do what we've been doing. Every school district should do what they've been doing with respect to the law. What the council has said, what the what the chairman, uh, for former Judge Sweeney, said, was that they will issue their written decision within 60 days. Now, they might issue it in 59 days, they might issue it in 60 days, and and we've seen various reports about that, including one I read recently that said that the, the uh, decision will become official 60 days after it's issued. Well, that's, I don't think that's accurate. I think what's accurate is there has been no decision issued, there will be a decision issued within the next 60 days, a written decision. Now, the reason for that in all likelihood, is to give the, the governor and the legislature an opportunity to come up with funding to fund the mandate uh, and to address some of the concerns that the council has raised and that and Alamucci and the other boards have raised. Now, I saw a newspaper article in which the governor was recently quoted as saying he's not quite sure how to respond until he actually sees the decision. So we're sort of in this chicken or the egg mode right now where, you know, we're we're not, we can't respond until we know what the answer is going to be, and we're giving you time to respond to the answers so we don't have to invalidate the law. I think one of the interesting questions that comes out of this for school districts is, what happens next? What happens if, say, on March 27th, and I picked that date because it's 60 days after the, the hearing, 
On March 27th, the Council issues its decision and invalidates the provisions of the law that apply to coordinators and specialists and school safety teams and programs and training and said that's no longer required under the law. I don't, for most districts, which have invested a lot of time and money and effort and training and creating this structure with programs and services and everything else, I would be very surprised if you saw them just chop those off on April 1st and stop doing what they're doing. That that doesn't make a lot of administrative sense to create that kind of upheaval in a particular school district should that determination be come out by the council. I well, think yeah. what makes more sense would be finish out the school year, keep doing what we're doing, and then in the annual review of the board policy, make whatever adjustments are necessary or available based on whatever the legislature's response may have been. I I think the other thing, and this is just my uh, my observation from uh, my I guess my conversations with school administrators and board members, they really were not aware of this council, or it was way in the back of their mind. And now they're looking at all laws and looking at whether this is a state mandate and whether it meets the criteria. And uh, I would imagine that even the, the Department of Ed and the legislature has to take a step back to make sure that when they craft legislation that it does this, that it is not a state mandate. Oh. And I think that was the intent of the constitutional amendment. I think that was the intent of the uh, um, of, of the forming of the council and the legislation legislation that enacted it was to do that. If you look at the legislative purpose, and, and that's basically what it talks about is not creating mandates for counties and municipalities and, and school districts that do not provide do not provide funding. <laughs> okay, Mike. I think Mike. an important point to consider is that. There's nothing in the constitutional amendment or in the legislation that says how much these requirements have to be funded. Now, we're going to stop on that because uh, right now on the line uh, we have both Tim Fredericks. Welcome, Tim. Hello. How are you? Good. And Fran Gavin. Fran, welcome. Hello. Yes, Fran, you're on the air now. Very good. Okay. Yep. Um First of all, I'd like to ask the two of you, when the law was first passed, I'll go to you first, Tim. When the law was first passed, what were your thoughts? Did you think, is this an unfunded mandate? or? Uh... Well, I don't know if if that was our first thought. Uh, you know, we knew that, uh, you know, we were going to have a, a lot of work to do to get uh, ready for it. It was, um, you know, we were told right from the get-go, that it was going to be effective on September 1st, so for, that we needed to be ready as soon as uh, kids came back to school. Um, as we prepared during the summer, you know, we weren't given a whole lot of guidance, uh, and there was a lot of mixed, um, kind of mixed messages and mm -hmm. interpretations on, the, um, on how to, you know, comply with the new law. And, uh, you know, it, as we moved through it, you know, it was becoming clearer and clearer to us, you know, how um, cumbersome it was becoming, especially for uh, us in a small district uh, where we don't have a whole lot of uh, staff and a whole lot of administrators that we can spread this work around. Uh, Fran, uh, at the board meeting when you were – when did it come to your mind that maybe we should challenge this in the way that you challenged it? 
uh, because before you came on here, we were discussing the council on local mandates, and not too many people even know about the council. So when did it dawn on the board? Well, it really was – the genesis was a discussion at the board level when uh, a report was given about the uh, the infrastructure that we'd have to put in place to comply with the statute. And several board members expressed that it was uh, yet another mandate from the state uh, that they foisted upon us while uh, at the same time constricting our, our, our financial resources. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that, that just sort of sparked the inquiry, well, you know, there's always been this talk about if you're going to mandate, you've got to fund it. So then some thought and research and discussion went on as to how we could challenge it. You know, there was a discussion about, you know, can we sue them, and if if so, how much would it cost? And that ultimately, that meandering path led to the constitutional provision in the Council for uh, Local Mandates. And um, I'll start with you, Tim, on this one. Uh, what was the process like? Uh, was it cumbersome? Uh was difficult, uh, and Fran can probably chime in because I think you kind of worked as a team on this one. Well, Fran did uh, most of the heavy lifting on this. Um, you know, that's for sure. Um, it, it, there, there was a, a definite prescribed legal process to to this, um, even though I guess it was relaxed in terms of a, a real formal uh, process. But many of the, uh, the the steps that were involved, the, the predecessor steps before we even got to go down to the council required, you know, um, uh, some legal filings and legal motions. And I'll kind of let Fran explain those pieces because, uh, again, he he's to be commended for this. He did most of the heavy lifting, and uh, uh, this did not cost the Alamucci Board of Education really one cent. Well, I shouldn't say that, Fran, right? How much do we pay for parking? Eight dollars. <laughs> yeah, eight dollars. Yeah, it cost eight dollars to, to park. So, in other words, we, we did this all internally, you know, mostly through Fran's work uh, on this and, uh, you know, didn't have to incur legal uh, costs uh, in the process. So you didn't hire an attorney. Uh, Fran, uh, you argued it, I guess? Yes. The case? Both, uh, uh, you know, it's you know, if you look at it, and I had talked to some attorneys that uh, had appeared before it, uh, one of whom represents Hackettstown and is part of the firm that represents us, and it was, uh, I was led to believe that it really was a, a proceeding and a process that was less formal than, for instance, a standard uh, court case, that the rules of procedure that would um, provide entanglements for uh, a board of education to pursue something on their own in a court or even in the Office of Administrative Law weren't present in, in this kind of body. So, eh, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And, and that's kind of the attitude we took in, in pursuing it. Uh, we're talking with Fran Gavin, uh, board president of the Board, and Tim Fredericks, who's the superintendent of the board. If you want to ask them a question or throw them a thank you, I know some people email me that. You just dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four and then press one, and I'll get you through on the switchboard. Uh, well, obviously the state didn't just roll over and say, you know what, Alamucci's right. Uh, they challenged your your claim. Um, and uh, I read through your arguments, which I thought were very concise and easy to understand. And um, let's go through some of the arguments that the state brought up, if, if you don't mind, because they usually win these cases. Um, 
One was that they argued that, that was TNA, uh, thorough and efi- part of a thorough and efficient uh, education, which is an exemption. We were talking about that before. Um, so, Fran, what was your retort to that? Uh, my retort was that it was actually easy to f- figure out because in an earlier case, I think the Highland Park uh, decision that the council had earlier made, and all those cases are available online, they specifically talked about um, legislation that was implemented pursuant to the Thorough and Efficient System of Education Clause. And and what they indicated there that the T&E provisions of the Constitution talking about setting up a system of education and really had to do with financing of education on a local basis. I actually thought it was kind of ironic that the state would argue that an unfunded mandate uh, is exempt under the T&E clause when the T&E clause is about funding local districts. Mm-hmm. But, and that's kind of kind of the argument that we put. It's, well, the, the council's already decided that and it has nothing to do with legislation like setting up a, a bullying infrastructure, with anti-bullying structure within the school. Rather, it has to do with a larger scheme of funding local school districts in relation to the the income tax and the local property tax. I, I probably should have clarified this before that when you argued the the case for your district, um, you're not an attorney. You're, a, if I understand correctly, a Latin teacher. That's correct. Although okay. um, I do have legal a legal background. Okay. Um, and Tim, I guess your part in this was to help document the costs. Yes, we, uh, you know, I mean, we're on the ground right here. So we uh, had kept uh, Fran and, and the entire board uh, kind of apprised of, you know, what our actual real costs are, what some of the prospective costs are, uh, direct costs and indirect costs, because, um, you know, of course we couldn't argue the indirect costs, but uh, and we really couldn't even argue the, uh, uh, you know, the prospective costs. But we could argue the actual costs that we had incurred uh, as a result of implementing this law. And uh, I think that that formed the basis. I think there were four points, Fran, correct, that we were uh, saying were were, um, uh, unfunded. Um, The creation of the positions, um, the uh, requirement to have a uh, 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 training component Mm -hmm. for staff, um, any... um, uh, extraordinary counseling services or any other services that wouldn't normally be provided as a result of uh, investigations that you know and the outcome of investigations and yeah, and it was really the creation of two positions. Yes, the creation of two positions. In, those, in those your district, positions. in other districts, it could be different though. Uh, yes, but I mean that's uh, well, that's precisely the point. I think that uh, uh, when this was put together, not a whole lot of thought was given to consulting the the actual districts. Uh, in a small school district, we don't have the leeway or the flexibility that larger districts do with a large administrative staff where we can just assign these positions or these responsibilities to someone who's not covered under a master contract. Uh, we need to actually dip down into the association and, uh, you know, uh, uh, employees that are covered under a master contract and they have the right to negotiate the terms and conditions uh, of, uh, you know, additional responsibilities that you're placing upon them. Um, as I read through uh, your your counter-argument, uh, one of the other things that the state brought up, uh, and Mike Calvert and I were discussing before, is one of the exemptions uh, 
was that it was a revision to the previous 2002 law. Uh, how did you address that? And again, it was another reference to an earlier decision made by uh, the uh, Council on Local Mandates. Uh, I think it again was the Highland Park case, but I may mm -hmm. be wrong, that talked about that um, you have to read the constitutional provision as a whole. And it talked about the repeal, uh, revision, and uh, there's a, two or three other things that you can do to laws that were listed there. And it, to look at just revision and ignore the others takes away the sense of what the constitutional provision provides. Uh, and in essence, what they had earlier said, and obviously agreed with our argument, is that yet the revision has to be one where you lessen the responsibilities as opposed to add on new, response, new costs, direct costs that are unfunded. And I, obviously that argument carries the day. Yeah, I would think, uh, I, I told the group uh, when I was reading through it that when the law was passed, it was a landmark legislation, and it's kind of hard. Kind of hard, from my perspective anyway, to argue later on that it's a revision. No one ever has a landmark revisions to laws. Um, right. Okay, the the state also argued that it uh, that it was funded, and it's they. It, it, I thought it was interesting. They argued that it, it, there's a lot of exemptions, that there are costs, but there's exemptions. But then they argued that you, they did give you money for this, uh, mostly in uh, through the security. Uh, I think this was a, probably a relatively easy one to argue. Um, yes, uh, absolutely, because our security aid has, uh, you know, for the last several years stayed flat, or even last year I think the, the, the portion of the security aid for Alamucci actually went down. So the security aid was not a, a, a component of state aid that was just created to fund the uh, requirements of this law. It's something that had been in place really for a number of years, uh, you know, as part of the state, the full state aid package. Okay, and, and, the, and the other way to look at that is uh -huh. security aid. Is, security aid is defined by a statutory prescribed formula, and if you look at the statutory prescribed formula, it has absolutely nothing to do with anything with the anti-bullying law. Okay, so that, that was a relatively easy, easy one. Um, and then the state argued that it was, uh, and I'm not sure where they got this, it was in the state aid that's already calculated in the state aid. At, and what was your counter to that argument? Well, I think really that was their attempt, their first attempt to argue the security aid portion. Okay. Um, and, and then, you know, then they finally, when, when pressed, refined it to focus on the security aid aspect of the overall state aid package. Tim, were you going to say something? Oh, no, that's exactly what I was going to say. It was kind of, uh, they, they, you know, I think their first uh, attempt to uh, counter um, our uh, position on that was refuted, and then they just went to the general state aid. All right. Um, and then I, I think um, one of the other arguments that the state made is that there was a lot of flexibility in the law and that there was really no cost because of the flexibility that they allow districts. And what do they mean by flexibility? That I was well, that, I, I'm not certain what they mean by flexibility because uh, when the law says, you know, districts shall, districts must, that doesn't provide a whole lot of flexibility. 
Um, and then I think that the the argument uh, uh, to you know the counters their argument that this was not going to cost anything. If it wasn't going to cost anything, one of the uh, provisions of the law was to create a fund, an anti-bullying fund, which is part of the law, but was not funded. So I think that you know the the members of the council were kind of scratching their heads on that. If you're arguing that this has no cost, why did you create a fund in, within the law? For it, you must have anticipated that there were going to be costs, but then they didn't fund it anyway. They didn't. They 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 created the fund and did not fill it. Yeah, and I guess their other argument would have been that in the law it says you don't have to hire new staff. You just have to reallocate the staff you have. Is that an argument they made, Fran? They did suggest an argument like that, but when presented with the the facts of our district. Um, they kind of abandoned that oral argument, um, except for one of the amici suggested that uh, tried to argue that, and so we'll just assign it to a new assign it to your vice principal, and we said, well, we don't have any or small right. district, we don't have a vice principal, and then then that argument just stopped. I think it was pretty clear that um, you know they were really are not familiar with the various structures of, of the schools. They and they really didn't talk to people who were on the ground implementing this or who were going to implement this. They just made some assumptions about how school districts are staffed and how they run. Um, it's completely different in different parts of the state, as you know. So they, uh, I was intrigued by that your last comment. Uh, Let's go back to the. I guess this was during the oral arguments. Um, it was just the two. Was it just the two of you for Alamucci? Yes. Okay, and one of you had the receipt for the eight dollars parking, I assume. Um, <laughs> and then who was arguing on the other side? How many people were up from the state? There was um, a deputy attorney general who had a uh, an assistant with him, and then there was two members from the New Jersey State Bar Association arguing. Uh, in favor of the law. Okay, and I guess I should also, before I go into another question, you were not uh, at any point uh, debating the the intent or the value of the law, uh, right? Him? Not in not in this venue. You know, this particular argument was really just about the unfunded parts. What we were saying, uh, in a nutshell, was if you want us to do this you have to give us money so that we can do it in the way that's prescribed in the law without money we can we it's going to be virtually impossible for us to do this okay um and i think more to more to your question um and dr fredericks indicated this uh, during all our argument uh, our district has absolutely no issue with the concept of being um, affirmative in preventing bullying and dealing with uh, what's going on uh, in society, especially younger folks, uh, it, with that kind of conduct. We've been doing it for years. In fact, we think we're, we know that we did it effectively for many, many, many years uh, in the structure that we had within our own district. Um, and, and as Tim indicated, our issue isn't with that, and with the underlying ultimate goal to prevent bullying and to raise responsible uh, and civic-minded young people into, into being responsible citizens, that our issue is with simply the, the fiscal aspect of the statute. Right. And as uh, when you made the arguments, 
it, so, it sounded like they would um it was almost like a not a discussion but it sounded like they could question you about ways to fund this law or implement the law uh and the council was just there to listen and put their own questions into uh it was uh, a very relaxed proceeding where members of the council were free to ask questions um and they did it was actually a I don't know. It was more of an argument as much as it was discussion. I find that uh, fascinating. Um, Mike uh, Calber, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Um, what did, did you find anything a little interesting in, in what uh, Tim Fredericks, the superintendent, and Mike uh, Fran uh, Gavin said, the board president, about their arguments? Uh-huh. I thought the arguments were all good ones, and I would add to the state mandate, state pay discussion of uh, and, and T&E discussion. Uh, one point in that, and we had made a similar argument back with the radon testing uh, law, that if you look at the model school district that provides the basis for funding, that some would say defines a constitutionally necessary T&E in New Jersey, forms a basis for the calculation of equalization aid, assuming that we ran the funding formula, which we haven't in Lord knows how many years, um, going back to the McGreevy administration, I would suggest. Uh, that being said, that model district, the last one that was put together, that put out all the components of what you should have in every school, that was created now before this law was enacted. So there was nothing in there that spoke to either a specialist or a coordinator or a school safety team or programs or services. So even in the state's own defined T&E model, wasn't in there. Hmm. So unlike Prego spaghetti sauce, it's not in there. <laughs> yeah, so they, they, I think one that, with that argument, you know, you look to the formula. Now, they were supposed to come out with a new one in September of 2010. That didn't happen. I mean, I don't know what we'll see down the road. So that's that's one piece that you know, not T and E, so it's not in there. The other piece is kind of interesting is that even in the old law, put aside the anti-bullying fund, there was also a provision in the law, and it's still there. It hasn't been repealed. That says if you incur any costs, you can ask the Department of Ed for money. And we did and, yeah, your some, and we did that uh, just as an FYI, and that that was part of our argument that that was presented. We did. Uh, go back to that other law, and we did ask the um, the state uh, to reimburse us for the costs that we had incurred um, through the county office, and we were told there was no money. And that, so that my understanding is that's the answer that's been given since 2002. Anytime anybody has been asked to for reimbursement of costs, that there is no money, which certainly helps your argument, and certainly doesn't help the state's argument that it's a fund that's funded. Uh, I want to confirm one thing, uh, Tim. If I was listening correctly, uh, I'm not sure. Maybe it was you, Fran. That they, uh, when the state was trying to counter your arguments on who the, the staff should be, and they said give it to a vice principal. But you're such a small district that they were not familiar with you. Do, do you think that helped you in the case that they didn't understand the structure of a small district like yours, and they just had a district in their head, the the average district, and that's how they would handle it? I, th- I think that really kind of uh, put a light on the fact that the people who were creating this law or the people who envisioned how it was going to roll out really didn't understand the structure of the schools that it was impacting. Yes, I absolutely. 
And we're not alone. I mean, we're not you know, in the state. We, we certainly, and especially in this economic climate, are, are uh, not flush with administrators here. Uh, you know, we're a small rural school district. Everyone here is doing multiple jobs. We don't have assistance. Um, you know, we're focused on instruction, and as such, those professionals are covered under a master contract. So if we ask them to do anything additional, they have the right under collective bargaining to come back to us and say, you know, we'd like to negotiate for that. And, you know, it was further suggested to us that we could just tell them uh, we have no money. You ha- you just have to do it. And mm-hmm. uh, we don't believe that that's negotiations. Uh, we we don't think that's negotiating in good faith at all. And if I remember correctly, are, are you a shared superintendent? Um, I was a shared superintendent at the time that this was originally filed. Okay. Right, Fran? Was I? I, I, I believe so. No, and, not when it was originally filed. But when, no. No. Because yeah, was, no. Uh, uh, two years, uh, for um previous two years prior to this school year, I was shared in Great Meadows. And uh, prior to that, I was shared for two years in Green Township. All small rural uh, districts out in uh, northwestern New Jersey. So. Right. Uh, I'm going to. Mike Howell, I'll have you come in. You know, you and I deal with all the variety of districts, the. And we kind of understand how it might in, laws might impact little districts or large districts. They're all different. Do you think that helps in the case that uh, they weren't understood? As Tim well, said, I, mean, I wasn't at the oral argument, but I would venture a guess that the council took notice of that, um, particularly if it appeared that the department really wasn't tuned into the specific needs of the smaller districts. So yeah, I think that's I think that's an important consideration. Yeah, certainly, it, from from an emotional or you know perspective, to understand that small district and to understand that that the difficulty in implementation without any funding, I, I certainly think it helps the argument. We're talking with Tim Frederick, Superintendent of Alamucci, and Fran Gavin, the Board President of the District of Alamucci, and also we have with us Mike Calber, uh, an attorney with New Jersey School Board Association. If you want to ask any of them a question, you can dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four and just press one, and we'll put you on on the switchboard. Um, did you have any lessons learned in this whole process, Fran? Uh, in and speaking, if you can, for the board. Well, um, there's one lesson that's learned and one lesson that we're still in the process of trying to to, to figure out. I think the lesson learned is that um, uh, at least on a uh, a small level, there there can be ways to uh, to, to address a problem like the one that was uh, given to us. But you know, the concern is. You know, we're only in, what, the fifth, sixth chapter of a 12-chapter book, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a few more chapters yet to write, seeing how the legislature deals with it. So, you know, we may have won a battle, but let's see how the uh, how the war turns out, I suppose. Yeah, and I guess, uh, Tim, as you, made, uh, you alluded to before, a lot of the costs were not direct. It's easy to do the stipend positions and some of the training, but some of the other costs are much harder. And I know New Jersey School Board Association, along with the New Jersey uh, Superintendents Association and also the business officials, are trying to gather data for some of these indirect costs, and we're finding that it's different in every different district. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, part of that is not all money, but one of the indirect costs, of course, it wasn't argued in the case, 
But in our particular case in Alamuchi, our specialist, who cannot be the building principal, so it is our guidance counselor. When you put a guidance counselor who is, um, you know, has uh, spent most of their life um, learning how to build trust in the student body and the par- and the and with the parents and the community into a position of uh, of investigation, uh, that whole trust thing is eroded, and that's a cost right there because it's a it's a, a fundamental shift in the role of that person within the school district. Um, you know, you can't quantify that, and we didn't argue that, you know, uh, naturally, but it's a, one of the unfortunate outcomes, I think, of this law. Um, Ray, if I if I can add to that, sure. it's Mike Kelber, if I can add to that, I think the same holds true with the school psychologist when they're chosen for that role. Absolutely. That they're, they're working with child study teams or working with kids to facilitate programs, and it, it is not a good fit. I, I venture that the, the group, that developed and drafted this particular legislation felt that a school psychologist or guidance counselor there, those who are nurturing people and work with kids and will understand and work with them well. But I, I would echo the uh, thoughts that they really didn't understand the investigatory role um, and how what the impact on that would be, not to mention the potential for conflict if a student who's a counselee um, now comes up under this. Now, how do you do? You need to find somebody else that's, you know, a secondary person to do the investigation. Um, you're also talking about people that, by and large, are not are not trained in investigatory questioning techniques. I mean, obviously, the way you ask questions of a kindergartner is going to be different than the way you ask questions of an eleventh grader. So, you know, there's a skill set there that for school psychologists and for guidance counselors or other similarly trained people that was that weren't contemplated and certainly training would need to be done to address that. I really think that down the road as this as this law evolves, you know, we get three, four, five years down the road, I think that those positions, the specialist and the coordinator positions, are going to become certificated positions. That there once we figure out the skills that are necessary and I don't think we know fully yet, but we're learning, the department will probably, similar to the uh, student assistance counselors, the SACs that are out there right now, that, that you're going to see certification for specialists and coordinators. Well, where do we go uh, from here? We have the council's ruling, and, and we're not quite sure if it's a decision not, or not, uh, and the governor wants to read a decision before he moves, and they're going to give it after they see what the legislature and the governor comes up with. Though I, I will admit it seems like the legislature and the governor are going to work together to come up with something. But um, where are we, Mike? What, are we in, like, limbo right now? Well, I mean, I, I think I think yes. I think we know what the likely outcome is going to be. We don't know exactly what the written decision is going to be. You know, per, perhaps um, you know, our, our friends from Alamuchi can – can give us some insight in terms of what the council actually said as they left that day. But from the newspaper accounts that I've read, and I I know enough not to believe everything I read in the newspaper, (laughs) it appears that the the four items that were brought before the council are likely to be deemed to be invalidated if the legislature doesn't act. Um, We we spoke a little earlier, Ray, um, about what I think is likely to happen in many districts is if this decision comes out 
March 27th, as has been suggested, the 60-day window would be. Wouldn't be surprised if it's a little bit earlier or later. I don't think districts are going to throw everything out the window that they've invested in for this particular year simply because those provisions have been invalidated. I don't think they're going to break down the school safety teams or tell the coordinators and specialists not to do anything anymore. They've got it in policy. We've developed that. Probably we'll finish it out through the school year with two or three months left to go and then look back in the review of the policy to implement next year and make whatever revisions and changes would be would be needed or allowed based on whatever the legislature does or doesn't do. Yeah, it's hard to budget. To whatever comes out of it. Wouldn't that be hard to budget to know um, without having this? And we're, we're doing the budgets now. So, uh, well, Tim uh, and Fran, what, have you taken this into account for next year's budget, or are you just going to go on? Uh, how are you proceeding? Well, we've been advised that, you know, until the final decision um, is made and uh, they they had, uh, you know, stated the 60-day time uh, frame, that the law is still in full effect, uh, you know, so we're still following the provisions of the law, um, you know, to the T, exactly as we were before that decision. Um, after that, I think that, uh, um, I think you got it right when you said that they're going to strike down the four portions of the uh of the law that are were deemed to be unfunded unless the legislature comes up with a fix uh before or money is provided so one of the two or maybe a combination um i'm going to switch subjects uh just slightly um do going through this whole process do you look at things differently like i'll be honest with you people come up to me and I think they might have a valid argument um, with the, the emphasis on teacher evaluations and the changing the model of that. Uh, do you look at that and say, I wonder if this is an unfunded mandate? Has that crossed your mind, uh, Fran or Tim? Yes, it has. Yeah, absolutely, because we were told in the pre-budget year here by our county uh, to um, plan on approximately $600 per staff member in your budget to implement this. Uh, for next year. Now, I, I don't know whether you know that guidance will change as a you know as a result of this, or whether that's being rethought. But that's an awful lot of money to uh, again uh, put right down onto the local districts to have to pay for, which in turn you know goes right to the property taxpayer um, on a mandate that's coming from the state. Um, so yeah, I think it, it follows follows in the same line of thinking. And Fran, you, I, you uh, agree with that, right? Well, I agree with it. Uh, I also recognize that um, I can see an argument the state would make uh, to try and suggest that this is not an impermissible unfunded local mandate. There's a provision in the Constitution that talks about uh, legislation that's necessary to implement, uh, to be implemented as a result or as a condition to receive funding. So, you know, the question is, is this teacher evaluation system part of the race to the top money? Um, is it not? Is it an overall kind of reformation of uh, the education system? You know, those questions have to be examined, thought about uh, in light of the Constitution and and, and, and and those other attendant circumstances. 
Uh, Mike, uh, earlier when we were talking about exemptions and exceptions to this law, uh, federal uh, regulations are exemptions, right? That's one of the exemptions, yes. So uh, if our, a waiver for uh, No Child Left Behind, uh, some of the requirements in that that the state has put in but are for the federal government, where do they kind of fall in? Well, it's... A good question? It's not exactly a federal regulation, um, but it's for the to implement, the, as you said. I think the state's going to make that, or I'll say with Francis, the state's going to make that argument that uh, as a condition of race to the top, as a condition of federal funds and us doing under No Child Left Behind, et cetera, et cetera, that's something that you need to do. Whether the council's going to buy that, I don't know. Um, they may very well look at the fact that this is a new evaluation system, if we're looking at that piece. Um, could it be done in another way? That Could they provide funding? Let's start there. Um, could they include it in equalization aid? Could they include it as a categorical? How does that get divided up? The, the interesting piece is if they, in any of these discussions, if, the, if there's money allocated for to fund the program, and let's say it's part of general equalization aid funding, that's going to be dispersed to districts on the basis of need. There are a number of districts in the state that get very, very little equalization aid, um, regardless of whether it's in the in the overall pot for distribution or not. So in, in a way, there may be a development that says, yeah, we can show it's funded through this process, but then for this particular district, District A, B, or C may, be, get, may get very little help. I mean, that's that's the, one of the dilemmas in looking at this. Um, we'll see what the folks down the street do when they when they craft this, uh, an answer to that. But uh, would you agree with me with this decision? I think if you do work for the Department of Ed, or if you work you know legislature, you have to look at how you craft the bills and how you fund them uh, a little bit more closely. Um, I, because I think people. What are, I would say. Is, what I would say. It. Yeah. What I would say is this: there has been other pieces of legislation, like with charter schools and funding, like with radon testing in schools, like with class size and special ed, that you would have thought would have triggered that thought process. Um, there will probably be, at least in the short term, just as there is any time something happens like this particular case. In the short term, people will think about it, they'll consider it, they'll work through it, and then depending on, as time passes and memories fade, I, I suspect that that, that um, concern about satisfying state mandate, state pay may lessen a little bit. But I think in the short term, there's going to be a heightened recognition of that, and, and hopefully people will act accordingly. Um. We're speaking with Tim Fredericks and Fran Gavin from the Alamuchi uh, School District and along with Mike Calber from uh, New Jersey School Board Association, it's legal department. If you ha want to ask a question, you just have to dial 1-347-989-8904 and press 1, and uh, we'll put you through. Um, I probably shouldn't have said, made that last remark because we're coming towards the end of the show, but um, as um, staying on the, the teacher evaluation model just for one more time. Well, actually, let me go back. Tim, have you received any phone calls from any other districts uh, or your colleagues? Because I know superintendents tend to call each other. 
Um, <clears throat> you mean uh, uh, since the decision? Since the decision, and maybe even before. I know some uh, districts sent uh, resolutions. Yes, we heard from or, we we heard from several districts, and uh, you know um, some offered informal support, and other more formalized support through the uh, submission of a resolution from their boards. And then after the decision, we heard from um, uh, quite a few more, and it's my understanding now that the um, uh, many of those districts are um, you know reaching out to the their particular legislators to uh, you know express their feelings and opinions on it since it's now back in in the um the hands of the legislature oh and and they're probably uh giving their legislators an idea of what the cost was for their district i think so yeah and uh, you know maybe uh other factors that you know that they're concerned with as far as the legislation is concerned as well okay uh, mike i'll ask you uh one final question so on march 27th if we don't hear anything the law uh, is is it invalidated? Well, if we don't hear anything from then the legislature the law and the governor, to be in full, either either I mean, either, if we don't hear anything from the council on the twenty seventh, we continue to proceed. If the legislature doesn't do anything between now and the twenty seventh, <clears throat> and assuming that the council works within that sixty day timeline. If they issue their decision invalidating the law, those provisions of the law no longer are in effect. Um, and we go from there. There would still be the definition. There would still be reporting required, assuming that those are the only four pieces that get invalidated. If there's other aspects of the law that the council determines that they're going to be a little more active on and they reach a little further, which they might, um, then we'll, we'll look at those. They invalidate three of the four. We'll look at three of the four. But whatever the council says is what it is. And, and as we said earlier in the show, what's interesting is that these are political decisions, and they're not subject to any judicial review. So, uh, so I, I would liken it to what some might say about executive county superintendent power since the accountability regs. Whatever they say it is, that's what it is. And, and you go from there. At least with the exec county soups, there's an appeal process. But here... It's it's a determination made by the council, yes or no, mandate or not, unfunded mandate or not, and go from there. Uh, Fran, you argued the case. You helped draft the, the written arguments, too. Uh, what would you tell your colleagues, fellow board members throughout the state, if they're ever going through this process? Um as Mike indicated, what's nice about it is this is really a political body that you appear before. The staff, uh, Sean Slaughter, was very, very helpful. Um, I think it's a user-friendly uh, proceeding. Um, I mean, I did, I do have some legal background, so my the, the critical eye that I bring to bear on like the Constitution and knowing how to find those cases, uh, maybe not everybody else uh, is confident enough to do that or uh, is capable of doing that, although I would suggest that most are. Um, you know, discussions with your attorneys would be fine. It's not, it's not, it's not a discovery-laden uh, proceeding that would incur a significant amount of costs. So, you know, I think if you have the right attorney, um, it's it, it could be something actually I think it would be fun for the attorney because they can do all the legal work 
and make the illegal arguments that have some political overtones to it and not have to deal with all the pain in the neck interrogatories and depositions and discovery stuff. That's an interesting point. And uh, Tim, uh, as a superintendent, um, would you advise your colleagues to look at this option if it makes sense to them? Sure. It's uh, Well, just as we ask all of our teachers to, you know, utilize every tool in their uh, toolbox when they're, um, you know, in front of students, I think we have to do the same thing. This was a tool that we had to, uh, you know, um, question and, and to try to get some support and some help. And, uh, you know, I, I would definitely suggest that, uh, you know, people look into it. All right. Uh, let's bring us towards the end of our show. Um, I'd like to thank our guests. Unless you have any final remarks, Tim or Fran, uh, something I missed? Oh, thank you for inviting us. Yeah. Um, oh, it was my pleasure to have you on, and I think because I think it really does show uh, to our membership, uh, whether they're a superintendent, administrator, or a board member, that sometimes you can fight the city halls, they say, or the state, and, and get a, a victory. We're not sure how big your victory is, but... Any victory was uh, encouraging to our membership, I, I think, at this point. So I'd like to thank you, Tim and Fran, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Mike Calvert, as always, uh, you're always welcome. Thank you. Well, thank you. Okay. Uh, our next show is Monday, February 13th at 11 a.m., and our guest is Mr. Chester Finn, president of the Fordham Institute, a uh, Washington think tank on, on education. Uh, and he will be talking about the role of school governance in uh, – some changes that he has in store that he supports uh, in that area. And that brings us to the end of another Conversations on New Jersey Education. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. As I always say, our kids' education is too important not to talk about. And thank you, and have a good afternoon. Thank you, Fran and Tim. Bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Thanks. All right. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.